Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another exciting episode of the Sports Psych MDs podcast, episode number 22, Coaching. Yes, indeed. We want to talk to you all about the psychology behind coaching. And, you know, what makes coaching so compelling? Like, how does it transform players into champions and, and teams and organizations, right, into, into dynasties? Uh, we want to talk about Greg Popovich and, you know, what makes him special and unique as a coach or, you know, guys like Nick Saban. How is it that they're so much more successful, right? the Pat Summits of the world? Yeah, they all share uh, something in common. Yes, they do. And another thing they share in common is pressure, right? It's a lot of pressure on coaches and it's a very stressful job. Uh, but hey, somebody's got to do it. So anyway, let's, uh, let's make this happen. And the NCAA is helping them out. Let's go. All right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Here we go. Come one, come all. 2020s never look better. Let's go. Coaching. We've That's all right. had great coaches in our lives. We sure have. And today's yeah. podcast is dedicated to coaching. Yep. What would, what would the world be without great coaches? Man, seriously. Oh, um, aimless. Yeah. I mean, goalless. Coaches, uh, you know, they bring out the best in us, right? And Help and us I think, reach yes. our potential our highest potential. That's right. And uh, I think all of us in one way or another has had some form of coach in our lives, right? Whether it was a teacher, teachers can be coaches, whether it's a mentor, a parent even, you know, a sibling, a friend, a pastor, pastor, you know, community leader. I mean, you know, a boss, a supervisor. I mean, a coach is someone who is essentially like an accountability partner, someone who can help you kind of set uh, and achieve goals that maybe you alone would not be able to achieve by yourself. Oh, yeah. And coaching, we've talked about it probably in a, one way or another in every single podcast we've done. I know episode 10, Mental Health for Young Athletes, we talked a lot about coaching and the importance of having a mentor, having a coach in a young individual's life. But coaching is important at all levels and at all ages. We all have bosses, and it's helpful if they're a good coach or a good leader. We're, today, we're going to specifically zone in on coaching. And you want to start off by talking about like the philosophy or the psychology? Which one do you want to start with here? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all rolled into one now, isn't it? You know, so there, I mean, there's a no, the coaching psychology is actually its, its own thing nowadays. And I know there's life coaches out there and the, and there's CEOs out there that want to be better leaders, better coaches. Coaching psychology, quote unquote, is actually the foundation of that mm-hmm. is based in humanistic psychology, positive psychology, all these different theories of psychology that have been here since early, early 1900s. Mm, yeah, back in the day. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the history of coaching is... Interesting. Um, back in Oxford University, all right, it was a slang term for essentially a tutor, right? Now, the reason why I got the word coach is remember, this is the 1800s and this is before cars and automobiles and stuff like that. So I guess they were still on the horse and 
buggy kind of system back then. And, you know, they had these uh, carriages. The stagecoach? Yeah, so stagecoaches, right? So, you know, for them, uh, the term carrying, right, and, uh, and coaching sort of went hand in hand. So because the tutor was the one sort of carrying the student through the semester, right, so they got their, their, their grades or whatever they would have passed, they got the name coach. Oh, it's nice. A slang term. It's actually a slang term. Yeah. Wow. Kind a little of history lesson. I like that. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, man. And, but it, makes it sense. actually, it makes so much sense, actually, because, you know, nowadays, and in, in certainly, you know, your sports like MDs, I mean, you know, we talk about coaching. We're talking about professional coaches, right? Uh, we're talking about these uh, leaders of sports teams, leaders right? of men. Leaders of men, leaders of women, you know, these people that uh, iconic figures in our society, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're going to talk about them today. Oftentimes, multi-millionaires millionaires as well. Right? I mean, you know, the Coach K's of the world, the Greg Popovich's of the world. The Pat you know, Summits. I mean, you know, these names that just, you, you hear them, and every, everybody knows you mm-hmm. know, who they are who they are, and what they're about and what they've done, what they've accomplished. And, and the thing is, Carrying can be thought of a lot of different ways. You know, when I think of it, you know, I think of someone that ultimately takes you to a better place. Takes you to the next level. To the next level. I think that origin is very appropriate. Um, And But it's not to be confused with coddling. You still have to carry your own weight. Absolutely. But let's let's get into the uh, psychology behind it. I want to talk a little bit about humanistic psychology. Yeah, man, because in that... You're going to hear a little bit about this whole self-actualizing principle. Yeah. So uh, Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow, a couple old school psychologists that were born in like 1908 or around then, they were the founders or they came up with humanistic psychology where essentially they say that each individual has an innate good and is driven to make themselves and the world better. So someone who studies the humanistic approach like Carl Rogers, he developed something called person-centered therapy where he focuses on an individual's freedom, choices, values, and goals. And in doing so, he helps carry that individual to self-actualization or to reach their potential or to just reach that next level. So that's the basis of coaching right there. You got guys like Maslow, and uh, he talks about this whole hierarchy of needs. Oh, Yeah, we talked about that in uh, episode, I think, five, what makes an athlete unique when we were talking about Andrew Luck. That's right. But... Essentially, there's these different levels, and then I don't know if we want to throw out the terms of self-worth, self-image, ideal self, if we want to get too deep. Oh, let's go. Let's go deep. All right. So part of that person-centered therapy is when essentially there's three three parts of the person. This is what Carl Rogers theorized. There's your self-worth, also called self-esteem. There's your self-image, and then there's your ideal self. So your self-worth is what we think about ourselves. Your self-image is how you see yourself. And your ideal self is the person you'd like to be. Oh, okay. I've always wanted to know the difference between these things. This exactly. is great. Exactly. This is great. <laughs> and do you agree with us? Because people throw around self-worth, self-esteem well, all the time. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I like that, you know, they've distinguished these things, you know, because I feel like, you know, we often interchange them. Yeah. People talk a lot about that person's got low self-esteem or I have low self-esteem. I have low self-worth. Yeah. And I think these are things that we all should be, we should be concerned about. I mean, because 
a lot of this, if you think about it, drives our behavior, whether we realize it or not. You know, it, it, it definitely kind of shapes how we feel about ourselves, right? Because this is information that we're taking in, and, you know, in turn, almost like doing like a personal inventory. Yeah. It and shapes how we make, why we make all our decisions that right. we make based exactly. off our self-worth, our self-image, yeah. based off who we think we should be, our ideal self. How we interact with others. Exactly. Yeah. So you're trying to overcome for your own perceived shortcomings. You're trying to show off for someone so they maybe boost your self-image or self-worth. I mean, think about how much we, we sometimes obsess, you know, over wanting to look a certain way or wanting to, you know... Uh, oh, yeah, look at who's who has the most followers on Instagram. We got the Kardashians oh up there, the Jenners that have how, all yeah. different types of artificial... It's all about how, plastic how surgeries. people perceive us. I mean, isn't that what... You know, social media is really all about you mm-hmm. know it's like really trying to control the narrative and it, you get in trouble when that begins to align how you how other people perceive you or the attention you get on instagram when that starts to align and equate to your own self-image that's when it gets dangerous because right. there there's individuals out there famous individuals on instagram like the, the kardashians or the jenners who are putting out a, a false standard, an artificial standard. And this is of, of beauty or even of fame and even of wealth. You're always looking at these individuals on a social media like Instagram where everyone's just projecting, pretty much everyone's projecting their ideal self, but no one's actually there. No one's actually living their ideal self. Mm-hmm. It's all charade. I love that. So I think it's harder and harder for people to quote unquote self-actualize. And that's a, kind of a silly sounding term. We don't use a a lot in psychiatry, but it essentially just means when someone's self-worth or self-esteem begins to equate their ideal self. So you get to the point where you actually can truly live the way you want to live. You're content, you're fulfilled, you're empathetic. Yeah, That's what self-actualization means. For sure. And, and I think that this is an essential ingredient in, in coaching, you know, in, in terms of the value of coaching. Yes, because right? it's important for anyone to try to get to this level. And, and it's not easy. Yeah. It's not, because th- this world's a pretty crazy place. You know, a lot going on. Life comes at you fast. Yeah. There's different ways to get to that point, but coaching comes into play because people have found over the years, you're talking about coaching was first coined in the 1800s, and these psychologists have been around since the early 1900s, so... They found that coaching is the best way for an individual to get to that point by focusing on that individual's personal values, goals, freedoms. Mm -hmm. That's that person-centered approach, the humanistic approach Mm -hmm. to reach your goals, to reach your potential, to reach your goals, which we just talked about, Smarter Goals, last episode. Bringing out the best in you. Yes. That's what it is. And that leads us to positive psychology, which we just talked about uh, in episode 20 in, in the year, gratitude. That's right. That's... Yeah, gratitude is a cornerstone of positive psychology. But listen, positive psychology, man, it's become an institution, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, I remember when I was a kid, guys like Tony Robbins. Uh, oh, he's still calling Guys the game. like, yeah, but, you know, guys like He was Robert, in Conor, Conor McGregor's corner with his fight with Cowboy <laughs> Cerrone recently. Hilarious. Uh, Conor but, McGregor looked great. He had additional coach right there. Robert Kiyosaki is another one that comes to, to mind. Who? Um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, no. When did, when did this come out? I don't... Well, this is like the 90s. Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Yeah. All right. It was a pretty so popular... I was a young pup. 
you know, then there's like, you know, books like, um, you know, how to win friends and, and influence people. Um, there'll be these guys. There was always like, you know, some new kind of guy on the scene that was just on stage saying, you are great and you are great. And you, you know, and it, it never really resonated with me. It all it seemed a bit hokey, not to knock that at all. I mean, I think those guys are all great in their own way and they all had their own interesting message. But I do think that there's been this crazy evolution from the time I was a kid. It's now turned into this whole kind of thing. It's now become this whole commercial thing. I think it's just kind of dominating all different industries now. Um, you have these employee wellness programs that are kind of taken off, you know, where they have this sort of like coaching element. Wellness coaching is a thing. I mean, there's this whole pathway now for people to become board certified coaches, yeah. you know, nationally certified coaches. We you talked know, about the DISC assessment episode 18, like companies yeah. are paying big money to come up with these assessments to, to be able to coach better. And it's all about positive psychology. You know, it's, it's all about empowerment, mindfulness, teaching these things. And the great thing about coaching, we'd be remiss if we didn't help, you know, our, our audience understand the difference because there is a difference between therapy and coaching, right? They're not the same thing. Therapy is, it's a clinical treatment, right? I mean, it is, you know, a structured process designed to manage and treat symptoms. Yeah, and we, right? symptoms there's of several different specific types of therapy that we talked about in past episodes. Yeah, they're structured. Um, evidence-based. Well, they're evidence-based for sure, but, you know, they're, they're focused on illness, right? Resolving illness in some way, shape, or form. Or dysfunction right? or dysfunction, distress, however you want to term it. Exactly. Now, coaching is, is not a, a, a clinical form of treatment. I mean, it's not designed in that way. But I actually think that's kind of what makes it very important and special, right? Because it's sort of, it's one of these things where you can still have a lot of the benefits of therapy, right? But it's really for everybody. You know, I mean, anybody, even folks that don't have mental health symptoms, you know, or mental illness, right, who aren't suffering, right? I mean, we're talking about everyday people, you know, living everyday lives, but just want maybe to get a little bit better, you yeah. know, in something or, you know, just kind of maybe there's just little tweaks here yeah. and there that, you know, need to be made. You to want help coming up best. with the game plan yeah. on how to achieve your goals. Yes, and so coaching has, has really become this whole enterprise. I think it's brought You're people, talking about like life coaching. Well, I'm talking about life coaching. I'm talking about wellness coaching. I'm talking about mindfulness coaching. How much is a Tony I mean, Robbins so seminar? Many, you can Tony go for Robbins, a weekend man, in Florida and you it's have to gotten, pay it's gotten a whole different level thousands now, and thousands you know? of dollars. Because I think that like as a, as a mental health practitioner, right? Like in my private practice, for example, I've embraced coaching. You know, I've embraced... You know, there's this new age, like I said, of clinicians who are coaches, you know, who we're talking about creating an enterprise now where, you know, it's not just treating patients who have disease, but it's also, you know, reaching out to people about mental health. Just it's, it's about having a narrative that works for everybody, yeah. you know, in terms of the narrative of protecting your mental health, improving your mm -hmm. mental health, preserving your mental health, 
and all the above. And, and, and may, coaches are a part yeah, of this. Yeah, and it may be some, an individual who isn't necessarily struggling with mental health would seek a life coach to just develop that game plan to reach their goals. Maybe they feel complacent and they don't yeah. know how to reach their goals. And obviously, if you're not playing a sport, and your boss is just focused on your job performance, but you want someone to help you with your life performance. You want someone to put a, help you put a game exactly. plan together to life reach your overall goals. Mental fitness, right? Mental wellness, mental fitness. It's, it's not just about mental illness, right? There's all these other aspects of mental health that are so important. And, you know, and here's where it really becomes interesting, okay? Now, a lot of folks, especially if you're not genetically vulnerable, right, a lot of folks aren't necessarily going to develop a major depressive disorder in their teens and 20s, right? They may get through that phase of life okay, right, relatively unencumbered, so to speak. But what happens to a lot of folks, especially folks that don't self-actualize, right, that don't have that experience where they reach their potential, is that later in life, you know, we know as a psychiatrist that depression is bimodal, right, in, in its prevalence, right? There's a peak, an incidence peak uh, that occurs later in life for men and for women. Just like, you know, there's a, a high incidence early in life, there's another incidence uh, that happens for men often in, you know, their early to mid-60s, for women, you know, often a little bit earlier in their 50s, but it's associated with a lot of the changes that take place later in life. But I've noticed for men, largely, largely based on having not achieved certain goals, you know, that they may have wanted to achieve earlier in life. Regret? Regret. Just feeling like you reach a stage of life where you don't, you know, really have an identity that you're comfortable with anymore, that you're happy and fulfilled. Now you're getting into that anymore. Eric Erickson psychosocial well, development. It's all it's all part of it, you know? And and what happens though is like when you have a let's say, you know, you are able to turn back the hands of time, right? If you're a guy who's in his sixties, right? And just kind of feeling dissatisfied, you know, with the last 30, 40 years you've put in. What about a thirty year old who's who's Talking about the glory well, days in high school. For sure. All right. It can be the same. What I'm saying that, okay, fine. That 60 year old, he turns back the hands of time to his 30 year old self when he's thinking about high school, whatever. The point is, that guy in his 30s, what if he were to have an intervention in his life, right? Where he invited an accountability partner, right? A coach. You mentioned life coach earlier, okay? And this person, you know, helped him develop a plan for how he could set his career on a different path, one that enabled him to achieve greater success and ultimately, you know, get that big promotion. And ultimately, just like in Back to the Future, he was able to literally reshape his entire destiny, his entire trajectory, and now, you know, fast forward in time, he's that man in his 60s, living the good life, you know, okay. happy. Nice. So I'm thinking, practicing a lot of gratitude to be grateful where you're at and not continue to think about the past and that you set goals to move forward and you help develop that game plan to for them to reach that goals. But what if you have someone that comes in for life coaching, and life coaching is huge out here in LA, a lot of disposable income, uh -oh. and they have a false sense of what their potential is? By the way, 
a lot of insurance companies now are covering coaching. There's a, a is procedure it, code. There's a billing for code for it? Yeah. All right. Billing code. Let me know. Hey, anyway, go. I digress. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> what if a, uh, um, someone comes to you and they, they have a false sense of what their potential is? If you are a life coach, how do you assess if maybe they do have a true mental illness and they need to see a psychiatrist to help them or you're a life coach and how are you going to assess if they're going to be receptive to coaching? That is a great question, actually. And that is something you have to think about because it's not as if coaches, well, you know, maybe maybe I'm speaking out of turn. I don't, I have not taken a coaching course before, so I don't know how, what exactly they're being taught per se, but I'm not convinced that they're being taught like how to do a diagnostic assessment. Yeah, you know? no. So how does, what does a life coach do specifically exactly? So I think that it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people, but what it probably means in most, if not all cases, is that they're helping create strategies. You know, they're helping the person to develop ultimately a system, okay. you know, that, that works for them that they can use to ultimately, I would imagine, to become autonomous in some way to achieve some sort of goal, ultimately to get better in So some they're way. helping them kind of structure their life, teaching them what we call executive function. For sure. There's definitely value in that, to be a life coach, to have Huge a life value. coach if, if needed. I think life coach is kind of a generic term. I think what it is, you know, it, I mean, people are just kind of like, finding another fancy word to attach to the word coaching. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think what it really comes down to is that partner, that consultant, that mentor, that person that you kind of develop that, that you know, some sort of trust in to help you, you know, bring there, out the best. There is a stigma against life, you. a life coach. And it is. There's, a, there's it even is. more of a stigma about life coaches within the realm of psychiatry. Yeah, and, and it makes sense because it's not as if it's evidence-based, you know. <laughs> There's that demeaning that it's you know, been proven to show yeah. that it's helpful. You know, a lot of it is sort of like almost like that that faith-based kind of stuff. You know, like people go to church and they say they're healed, you know. It, it's a lot of it is about what you believe. Yeah. But we know as psychiatrists that, you know, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. And I think just what we've talked about a lot of our podcast, a few simple steps that, that baseball coaches, teachers, mentors, that they all do that are, could be beneficial for, for anyone. And if a life coach just presents those to the table, presents gratitude practices, presents goal setting and Mm -hmm. smarter goals, Mm -hmm. that's enough to help an individual. Yeah. I mean, listen, let's, let's be honest. Achieving goals, it's hard. I mean, if everybody could just, you know, wake up one day and say, all right, I'm going to go climb Mount Everest or something, then everybody would do it, you know, but most people will never be able, be capable of doing that. You know, most people won't, for whatever reason, not just because they're physically unable, but just getting there, you know, it takes, it takes a lot. It takes money, you know, it takes time, you know, all that stuff. It's, of course, depends somewhat on the loftiness of the goal, but there's only so much time in the day and there's only so much energy, you know, all these things are finite. And so really being able to say, I'm going to like just 
change my entire process and do something different and new or same, the same thing, but better than how I've been doing it mm-hmm. is hard. And what I realized in thinking about this and you know, us having these conversations is that it requires that one develops a system. It can't just be the same old thing, mm-hmm. right? That's the it game plan. It's the game plan. It has to be a, you have to, it has to be a, a distinct departure from whatever script you were on, right? Flipping a new script, you're on a different sheet of music, yeah. you know, a different page of the playbook, and you know different what, strategy. And know what happens and that's is... that's not easy. It's uh, not yeah. easy. A lot of individuals would get that if they played sports as a kid. Yeah. They're going to get tested and they're going to have to make course corrections and the coach is going to ideally help them do that. So I think... And that's mental flexibility working for you in a sense. It's like you have the ability to adjust, you know, to change the system. But sometimes it's easier said than done. And we know this in the coaching world, frankly, knows this very well because of the power of addictions. Yeah. Right. Well, let's we'll definitely get into that. But let's let's go ahead and pop into let's bring up the coaches that we think have exemplified the gold standard of coaching. Mm-hmm. And we kind of dug into the, the, each of these individual coaches, and they all share kind of one thing in common. And we'll definitely get to that. But the first coach I want to bring up is none other than Greg Popovich. Now, there's a there's a book I've been reading called The Culture Code, and they talk a lot about how essentially what we're talking about a lot about how do you create the best environment to lead your team to success, whether it's a basketball team or the the Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. So Greg Popovich, Mm -hmm. like how do you do that? We just, we talked all about that, but in a team setting and when when you're coaching a team, how do you best get all these different individuals from different backgrounds, from different countries, if you're talking about the NBA, to play together as a team and be successful as a team? Because sometimes, like we talked about before, a certain player's thought of individual success may not actually align with the team's success. Take, for instance, Trey Young right now is just going out there scoring at will. But his team's not winning a lot. He made the all-star team. He's a starter in the all-star team. That's individual success, but their team success is lacking. So how do you get this, bring everyone together for congruence for team success? And that's why Greg Popovich has... Is quite frankly, probably one of the best yeah. currently. Yeah, it's kind of an honor, uh, honestly, for me to, to be able to, to, to talk about Greg Popovich. I mean, to be able to, to watch him do what he does, first and foremost, because he is a fellow alum. He is an Air Force Academy graduate, like myself. Do you and have like so, a saying? Like, we have a lot to like, say. <laughs> we have lots to say, man. Like I would be like, if I talked about a fellow IU alum, yeah. I go go Hoosiers. Do you have anything like that? Uh, God, we have so many. I think the U- USC honestly, does fight I think on. I, I can't give you like the secret secret code, and I'm not trying to be funny, just because just the, the audience here, I feel like I would get so much crap, so much yeah, shit if I gave away like the you know not we have this kind of code. thing, and everybody know, everybody's in the academy knows the phrase, but. Um, no, I mean, the only reason why I would say maybe not is because the weird thing about the academies, right, and this probably goes for West Point Naval Academy too, is that 
you end up getting so close, so tightly bound to like your 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 group, like your team, like the guys you train with, uh, and your class, that a lot of those like expressions end up being like class expressions, not okay. necessarily school, because you end up actually hating your upperclassmen, right? Like the guys above you, you hate those guys because you know they were the ones that trained you, they kicked your ass all freshman year. So it's always going to be a weird relationship with them. But, you know, your class is like your family. So, like, we have this thing, 2002 is my year group. So 2002, no limits, you know. Okay. So that's like, so you must anybody had a, I see. You must have yeah. a good coach. Oh, yeah. No, we had, I, I mean, yeah, I would say the military, you know, that's one thing they do really well is they train, they coach, like, they really get you ready to do something special, right? I mean, I mean, battle, like putting your life on the line, that's that's about as like, you know, I mean. You gotta be pretty you, selfless you, and empathetic well, and work well with your teammates yeah, in that situation. Yeah, man, I mean, talk about being in the trenches, you know, literally and figuratively and, and really like, that's all you got, you know, is just each other. Um, they train you that way, but basic training is they, they want you to be in that mindset of like, what would it be like, right? The Air Force was a product of World War II. It was born out of the Army Air Corps, but, you know, it sort of shown its independence, so to speak, through, you know, what it had accomplished in World War II. So, you know, eventually the Air Force was created in the academy long afterwards. And I would tell you the military in, in general, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences I'm sure that I'll ever have primarily because of the way it made me feel like, I mean, I just brought out the very best of me, like things I never thought that I could do, things I never thought that, you know, I could even imagine. They bring that out of you through really this sense of a higher calling. They basically take, you know, this sense of duty, the duty you have to protecting the, you know, the country, and they really make you feel that warrior spirit, you know, and that sense of purpose, you know, all the values that, you know, this country kind mm -hmm. of stands for. And so that sounds emboldening. It is, man. And it's just like this great experience in what coaching can do, what it can be, yeah. you know. And I imagine, I love the way you explain that. I imagine if I were to ask someone else who's in the military, they'd probably explain it in their own individual way, but feel that same sense of, of passion and, and motivation to work as a team and, and feel that same kind of emboldenment and passion to to reach those goals whatever mm -hmm. goals you set yeah and in turn just focusing in probably on the, the goals that you had within your your team and within the air force that translated yeah. outside of like the missions oh, yeah. and made I mean, you overall it, a better person it, se it seemed crazy at the time you know like 17 years old 18 years old and I mean, you're going all day, every day. You know, it's just like you wake up and you're going, and you're going to bed, and you're, you know, you're just. And it's like even after basic training, like even into like our actual like academic year, our freshman year, like that, you wake up, you immediately got to be locked in. You know, they have expectations. Um, you have all these things that you have to be responsible for outside of academics plus a full load of, you know, classes, you know, 20 plus credits, 
And then you have all these physical fitness standards, like testing that you have to do on a regular basis. So you have to like stay in shape and you have to balance all this stuff. And usually, you know, I mean, you don't stop working mm-hmm. right until bedtime. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this is crazy that I have to go through this. Like, this is not how life is. And I imagine like people back home, that nine to five, I imagine that that's what life is about. Like you go to work, you come home, you just chill, you relax, you hang out with your family, not realizing what they were actually preparing me for. They weren't preparing me for that nine to five. They were preparing me for something so much bigger than that. You know, and like people that are really, truly successful in this world, I mean, you know, like what I mean is like people that are essentially called to be leaders in their fields, people that, you know, really are making that sacrifice. You know, it's not, it's not a nine to five. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're talking always like, on. And you're like, talking about CEOs, you're talking about head coaches for major head coaches, programs. You know what I mean? Like Greg like Popovich here. Executives, you know, like high-level politicians, you know, high-level decision-makers, people that have just essentially completely dedicated themselves to their field, doctors, in some cases attorneys, but people that are just like, I'm all in, right? Pastors, you know, people that are just like, I'm all in, right? This is, this is who ju- I am. Yeah, it's not just a job. It's more than a job. It's, it's my life. It's your life, you know? And, and this, yeah, I mean, you know, like you, as you put it, great coaches you know, that's what they are. That's what they become, right? Mm -hmm. It's a calling. So that's great. So you had that experience in the military. Some people get that through sports. Some people get that through their church. And I mean, Popovich, like you started with, that's your, that's your guy. And I'm sure him going through the air force, um, implanted a lot of these, uh, standards. I totally see it. Like when he interacts with his players, you know, like I see this intensity, right? That's the one thing that when I think about Popovich and how he his contrasting style of coaching is that it's a very almost like emotional, like really kind of in your face. But a lot of people, I think they get kind of thrown off. They think it's hostile. They, what they don't realize is that he has a completely different type of relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he makes it, he, he almost like creates like a family with his players. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I have some quotes from one of his assistant coaches, Chip England. He said, pop, he delivers two things over and over. He'll tell you the truth with no BS and then he'll love you to death. So that's, that's a family member right there. Yep. Someone that is going to be brutally honest and, yep. and most likely hurt your feelings but at the end of the day, it's, it's a all lot love. more. Yeah, it's, it's a love. lot more meaningful coming yeah. from someone that you love and trust, and a family member, or a, a teammate. Because at the end of the day, they're saying it out of the the goodness of their heart. But there, there's a reason behind it. Yeah, it's all and, love. And it's not necessarily for just like personal gain. They really have a vested interest in you. It's not just business, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why I think a lot of these coaches are so successful because for them, it's not just like a business. Greg Popovich, I read that sometimes he'll have his players sit down instead of watching game film, they'll watch like a CNN documentary about Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, and he'll ask the players at the end of the game, like, "What do you think about this? Right. What would you have done in this situation?" And he's trying to he's making connections with yes, these individuals. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
He's making them in this situation maybe feel a little bit more vulnerable. He's making a connection with them, and he's making that connection not just through basketball, but through life events, which that's how a lot of people make connections, is bonding mm-hmm. through different personal life events, getting to know someone's thoughts and viewpoints on things. Mm-hmm. He's really trying to connect with each player and each assistant coach and each person on the staff. Yeah, and it makes sense, especially given his military background, because think about it, like how else, just think about it for yourself, T, mm-hmm. right? How do you get people motivated to go to battle, to put their life on the line? I mean, you know, it, yeah. how do, you, how do so you do that? I would think it becomes not about the battle. And like you said, whatever you want to term it, a higher calling or just wanting to have your teammates back, just wanting that connection, just being so connected and invested and empathetic with people around you, your teammates, the people you're going to battle with. In your case, you're the fellow cadets. You God, it's got to be family. You're not going to die for your acquaintance. You're going to die for your brother, your sister. I mean, think about it. Like You're in a situation where this person could be the guy that either leaves you there to bleed to death or drags you through the jungle, the rescue Forrest, chopper. Forrest Gump style. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to be one or the other. Yeah, and it, we're taking it to the extreme, but if you think about it in basketball sense, it's about something bigger than just the game. And that's what Popovich does. He uses those moments, like having players sit around wa- watching a CNN documentary about Martin Luther King Jr., people realize to not only connect them and engage them by having everyone share their own personal views and thoughts, but to let them know that there's so much more going on. There's something bigger. And uh, general manager, R.C. Buford, he said, Pop uses these moments to connect us. He loves that we come from so many different places that could pull us apart, but he makes sure that it makes us feel connected, engaged to something bigger. That's right. And what about these 19 words? You can give someone... A lot of power in 19 words. 19 simple words. You don't believe me, do you? (laughs) Hit me with them. Here we go. I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations. And I know that you can reach them. Yeah. Count them up. Count them up. I'm giving you these (laughs) 19. No, seriously, that's 19 (laughs) words. And you tell someone that, especially someone that looks up to you in some way, and I guarantee they're going to feel a little something special inside. Oh, yeah. You're telling them you're part of this group. This group is special. We have high expectations, and I believe you can reach these expectations. You're empowering them. And that's what Popovich is doing. He's empowering the people. You know, he uh, he's obsessed with food and wine, and on each road trip they go on, he takes the assistant coaches out to dinner, and he... They all get bottles of wine, delicious Aww, food, and then he gives them so a leather sweet. bound he gives them a leather bound book of of the wine list that they got on those road trips during the season. He's basically just connecting with these people. Yeah. On no, a personal a, level. No, he's not just some I love it. He's not the guy on the sidelines just screaming and yelling all the time. He's been depositing in that bank all season by making connections with individuals. So he's got money in the bank by the time he goes on the court and rips into Tiago Splitter. You know? Because... Yeah. It's a lot easier when that's coming from someone you're connected to, a family member, a friend, a loved one. And Pop becomes almost like a family member to these guys. Pop. And who el- who Pop. El- Pop. There it is. Oh, yeah. Who else does this? I mean, Bill Belichick comes to mind when you're talking about these great coaches. Oh, yeah. 
winning. That's what I think about. Yeah, Rebellion. he might be a little bit more prepared and and a little bit more maybe anal about the X's and O's. Who, different who, disc. Who really knows? But he he does completely have, different, completely different disc. I found five things that he likes to that his five principles of coaching. He says leadership means building a team that's exhaustively prepared, but able to adjust in an instant. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, and then he talks about how leadership means having the discipline to deploy your dependables. He talks a lot about how he doesn't need those highlight, real flashy guys, although he did bring in Antonio Brown, but shortly after that got rid of him. He wants people he can trust because sometimes these flashy guys like a, um, James Harden, isn't dependable in the playoffs. Mm. I know it's a different sport, but he wants guys that are dependable. Mr. Dependable Tom Brady, year in and year out, just Steady. dominating. And Steady that's why you all, as a rock. you always see he'll let go of a big-time guy and he'll bring in these guys that were waived or cut from other teams and he'll turn them into pro bowlers. Yeah, no, that's definitely the special sauce when it comes to Bill Belichick. I, that's the one thing that he's done throughout his lauded career as a coach in the NFL. It just has always blown my mind. He, his ability to just kind of take anybody off, you know, off the street, irrespective of where they came from, and turn them into champions. He did this with Jamie Collins, like a no-name linebacker, and then all of a sudden he was a, a stud for the Patriots, and then the Browns pay him big money, and then the Browns end up waving him, or somehow he got back on the Patriots this past season, and he was killing it again. Yeah, and I, and I think with him, it's, a, it's so much deeper, but it's all right there built into that statement he made about the intense preparation. Yeah. Because he he's all about creating a system. Yeah. yeah. That's what he's doing. And now that he's got multiple championships, that's more money in the bank than you'd ever need. Like, players are already going to recognize that this guy is for real and he, he's going to get me to the promised land if I, if yeah. I buy in because he's got six Super Bowls. He's done it. I mean, there's no doubt if you kind of connect the few dots between him and Popovich, because they're very different guys, right? But, but if you connect the dots, that's something they both definitely have in common. They're both yeah. no-nonsense alphas. They're no-nonsense alphas, but they have a system. <laughs> They'll fuck with the media. They'll get after their players out in public. You know, um, and, and, and you come in to the, the system. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know yeah. what I mean? It's not about... No one player is bigger than nah, the system, nah. right? So his third thing was leadership means being a boss. Of course, he's an alpha. But his fourth thing, and I looked at this, he, he says leadership means caring about everything going on in the lives of your people, your players. And that connects to what Pop was doing. You're trying to connect to these individuals as people. And this is one of, Bill Belichick said this is one of his five tenets. I know if anyone watched the Aaron Hernandez documentary recently or listened to our podcast about concussion, all right, maybe you didn't know exactly what was going on in the lives of that one individual. But there's what? And besides CTE? There's what, 55 or so people? Yeah. Yeah, of course, besides CTE. Yeah, God. There's we fish, went through that. Yeah. Aces? Well, the, Can we just sum it the, up with Aces? The Netflix special just came out. Everyone's talking about it. But there's like 55 people on NFL roster. Anyways, besides that, and his last one means leadership never means resting on your laurels. Of course not. you got to evolve. And each generation is different, right? With this new generation coming up that you see in the NBA right now, um, in the NFL and, and Major League Baseball, these yeah. 20-year-olds, it's mm -hmm. a little different growing up with that Instagram and that social media. They're built Very a little bit differently. So. Yeah. So, so but, I, but that's yeah. but they are built differently. But I do think that his philosophy works for any generation, including the the new generation. Oh, that's why he's saying you never rest on your laurels. Listen, 
Quote, Bill Belichick, you can't look back. We don't talk about last year. We don't talk about next week. We talk about today. And we talk about the next game. That's all we can really control. Like, I love this because it's tough talk. It's all, you know, this and that's very direct. But it's really just about mindfulness at the end of the day. It's about being mindful. It's about, you know, not worrying about the past, not worrying about the future, because those are things you can't control. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you worry about the present. And you're worrying about the next game, so you're setting goals. Absolutely. I wondered to myself sometimes when I see these, these situations, like these epic collapses, right? Like what happened in, in the NFL playoffs, right? Just most recently, with teams like the Ravens. You know, nah, these... They just got beat. Well, maybe, right? Man yeah, to of man, course, of course they, they did, beat. but... What, what always Henry. shocks me, here's what shocks me, right, is when you see a team kind of playing a certain kind of way, game in and game out and game in. I mean, you know, they really prepared. They've done all the right things. I mean, it's not, we, not like we can say that they didn't have the right sort of preparation. They were dysfunctional. They, they were doing it right all year long, and then they just got annihilated in this game. They ran into Derrick Henry. Of course. But, you know, you, you wonder to yourself, were they worried about Derrick Henry? Thinking about Derrick Henry. Well, Earl and Thomas he, came out with that comment, said, and that how he punished. They ain't gonna struggle tackling. You know him. how he punished. You know the team the week before. Patriots. Yeah, and how he punished the Patriots. Were they worried about that instead of focusing on? Of course, the they were worried plan. about that. See, stop them. Well, no, man. I had to figure out a way to stop them. That's the problem. If you're worried about it, you already lost. You know, like they just need to be preparing. I guess it depends on your definition of worry. That's right. That's right. But we're getting into semantics here. So let's talk about Bill that's, Belichick. That's, that's what we do. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> Bill Belichick's uh, best buddy, Nick Saban. Oh, my God. Another guy that yeah. it looks like this isn't someone you necessarily want to hang out with. Does this guy ever smile? Does, it, does he ever have a good time? No, I know. <laughs> but he, he also, this is the Alabama he football has that coach. grimace. For you guys who don't know. A famous grimace. He also says that he takes the time to try to understand his players. He tries to study the psychological profile of every, every one of the players for clues on how to connect with and coach them. Mm. He says... I enjoy seeing if I can get somebody to respond, even if they're a little bit abnormal and abstract in how they view the world. Well, how can I reach a person to get them to do things that are going to benefit them, but also benefit the organization? That's an interesting, interesting quote. So it's almost, he's, he's very analytical in this approach, um, breaking it down, stating all the kind of right things because he wants to benefit them, but also benefit the organization. But it's something he puts time into to try to connect with each individual player. Yeah. Like I said, I think a college football team has 80-plus players on the team. How do you best connect with each individual, get to know them, get to know how to coach them individually and specifically to get the best out of them? Because you can't just use the same coaching style for every individual. And that's the common theme here. Every one of these coaches, they want to connect with the individual to not only get their trust, but also to figure out what's the best way to coach this individual. Mm-hmm. Do they respond better to positive reinforcement yeah. versus punishment? Right. Are they a closer? Are they someone that's going to be a verbal leader, or are they going to lead by example? Are they the emotional rah-rah guy, or are they the glue guy mm-hmm. or girl? Yeah. What I think I see as a common thread 
among the different college-level coaches that really seem to be most successful are the guys that seem to be pretty good at empowering their players, meaning transferring that that power and giving the, the player, the individual, a sense of some level of control of their own destiny, and therefore collectively, you know, the team's destiny. You're trying to get them to internalize that motivation. That exactly, drive. exactly, exactly. And that is a really important process that I think, you know, all coaches should aspire to. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't think that all coaches really have that ability in the same way as some of these legendary mm-hmm. coaches because I think that's a unique quality, yeah. you know, especially like in how you, you go about doing that. Because every player, I think, individually, that process is a little bit different. Yeah. Right? It's like therapy. It's, it's got to be individualized. In that how, sense. You that's, know? that's why coaching is so complicated. Yeah. That's why these guys get paid the big bucks. Yeah. You can't just whitewash it and do one strategy for everyone. It's not one size fits all. But you have to make them feel at some point they have to trust and believe in themselves. And you have to be able to instill that trust. And it's not, trust me, man, it's not that I'm not like I'm one of these guys, but I'm just saying like, it's not just about just compliments, right? It's not just about killing them with compliments or whatever. Oh, I saw the Nets coach today, you uh, know. Jared Allen, I think had a, a putback dunk or had an alley-oop dunk and they called a timeout. And Kenny Atkinson, the coach of the Nets, just went up to Jared Allen and I haven't seen you do that all year. That's what you do. You're, you sprint to the basket. You run to the basket. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He was giving him positive reinforcement yeah. to try to con- get him to continue to do that and not shoot the, the 15-footer. Right. But you notice that you know guys rarely do that with rookies. And the reason why is because you know I, I think that part of the, the challenge of coaches is understand you know, the time and the place. And I think that when a person's learning, it's important not to compliment too much because you want to reinforce this notion that doing the right thing should just be, you know, what you do all the yeah, time. Yeah, you should internalize you know? that motivation. Yeah. So you don't need the positive reinforcement. Exactly. But, um, and you have to determine when your athlete is at that stage where they no longer need it. Exactly, yeah. And some players may respond better to if Jared Allen were to shoot the 15-footer, maybe some player would respond better if the coach was like, don't do that. Why are you doing that? And like scolding him and punishing him for shooting it versus positively rewarding him for doing something good. You're punishing him for doing something bad. So it's about the coach to know when what each individual player needs and when they need it based off their, their mindset at the time. Yeah, because operant conditioning, you know, that's, so that's a fundamental pillar of maybe, coaching. So how do you get an athlete to do what's best for the team if maybe they don't necessarily care about team success? You have to embolden them to make them realize, well, if the team's successful, that means you're going to be successful. That's right. So maybe that's going to motivate him. And then um, you were talking about earlier about life coaching, and it's more than just a game. I want to talk about Dabo Sweeney, a football coach of the Clemson mm-hmm. Tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of has taken Nick Saban's juice as of late, but he has what's called the PAW journey. And that's another acronym or mnemonic. It's called Passionate About Winning. And this is for the football players. So their mission is to cultivate leadership in our student-athletes through personal growth, life skills, and professional development. This journey prepares each young man to be the example of sustaining a lifestyle of winning. 
So it's essentially, it's helping them with resumes. It's helping them with career development and oh, leadership. Great. It's helping that. them with, with mock interviews. It's helping them off the football field. It's helping yeah. them that's good reach stuff. that greater goal. That's really good stuff. So you're telling them, I don't just care about winning these games. I also care about you as the individual. If I'm creating this program that is specifically designed for you to succeed off the football field. Let's not forget Pat Summit. Rounded oh, out with her, the legendary coach of the Tennessee Lady Vols. Rest in peace. So she she said she um, took inspiration from UCLA's famous coach, John Wooden. We talked about him, his pyramid success. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on our Instagram page. Go check that out. She said, quote, unquote, I don't treat them all the same, referring to her players, but I treat them all fairly. So yeah. she takes that individualized approach because you know that Everyone has their own background, their own varied interests, their own way of responding to coaching. Yeah, and she's basically identifying coaching as just another form of leadership. You know, it's an extension of leadership. So in summary, how do you best coach? You connect, you emphasize belonging, that family environment. We talked about the holding environment in episode 10, mental health for young athletes. There's a lot of themes with that one. You emphasize belonging. You provide this room for comfort and growth because you're going to test them, but you're also going to give them the space to grow and feel safe with making mistakes and getting better and being vulnerable because that leads to more connections. So connect, emphasize belonging, and recognize high standards. Let them know you see the potential in them. And that, yeah. and that all Well, you got to challenge them. Challenging the individual is one of the most important things you can do as a coach because the only way people really get better, the only way people change is that at some point they have to confront the idea that the way they've been doing things just isn't good enough. Yeah, you reach that zone of proximal development. You can't do it on your own. You have to, you got to get some help. Yeah. Keep moving forward. You have to face adversity to find new ways around. And and this is kind of a plug for a reminder about the importance of sports when establishing the foundation in a coach or in a leader or in a CEO. So so do you know what a disproportionate number of CEOs have in common? No, but I guess you're going to tell me. They all played sports when they were younger. Oh, that makes sense. You want, I, dude, I, that makes perfect sense. I can go down a whole entire list right here, dude. I'm not going to do it. The Whole Foods CEO. He was the captain of the Stanford soccer team, the Bank of America CEO. He played rugby at Brown. Even Mark Zuckerberg, I guess, did high school fencing. Fencing. I don't know. Wow. If, does Those that guys count? Were weird. Yeah, no, it counts. It counts. No, you're right. You're right. It counts. But according to Ernest and Young, they did studies on this. It's even more common for female executives to have played a sport. They surveyed 821 high-level executives and found that. 90% of women sampled played sports. That's incredible. And if any woman carrying a C-suite position, meaning CEO, CFO, this proportion rose to 96%. Wow. So let's throw out some women. Pretty much all of them. Let's throw out some women, yeah. <laughs> you know, you got like Indra Nuyi, Pepsi CEO. She played cricket in college. That's pretty cool. Um, and then the CEO of Sunoco, Lynn Elsenhands, played at Rice University on the women's basketball team. All right. And we got Meg Whitman, CEO Hewlett Packard. She was on the swim team and played a bunch of different sports. So sports, that gives you that foundation. 
just like you were in the military and it gave you that foundation of, of success, that foundation of becoming a leader, becoming the person you are, becoming a psychiatrist. Sports is that for a lot of people. It's that first opportunity to learn to be selfless, to learn to work for the greater good. So that's just a little plug for putting your kids in sports at a young age. Let's get back to coaches, though, because that's what this is about today. What about you? You mentioned before there's some scandals going on. Did I? There's a lot of pressure on these Did coaches I to scandal? win. I'm always talking about scandal. It's all about scandals. What about Mr. Rick Pitino? Oh, former Louisville, Kentucky Wildcats coach. Legendary coach. Had a cup of coffee yeah. with the Celtics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a two brief, national brief cha- stint. Two national championships? Mm-hmm. Well, Big dog. Now he only has one. One was taken away. So he actually had three separate scandals at Louisville. But before I get into that, Louisville is the top grossing college basketball program. Wow. So the reason I'm saying that they, they average $52 million in revenue per year. Hard to believe. So that just sets the stage for how much pressure is on these individuals. Maybe they're not the, he's not the president of Louisville or the CEO of the basketball team, but he's the coach. He's the fa- essentially the face of that program, that $52 million program. So that's a lot of pressure to uphold. Plus you're playing a competition against other people. And guess what happened? A lot of pressure. I don't know if that pressure led to these things or when you, we've talked about before, when you get put on this pedestal, sometimes you feel like the rules don't apply, but there was a sex scandal that broke out. He actually got extorted and the, the person went to jail. And then there was a story about how they were getting escorts yeah. for the recruits. And then that didn't do him in. What did him in? The bribing allegations is what did him in. So it took, he came clean after two sex scandals, but they found out, I think it was with conjunction with Adidas that they were paying the recruits. So he he got fired even though he's extremely successful. Yeah, I mean, NCAA, wow. God, they, uh, they've really had scandal after scandal after scandal over the years. Remember, remember uh, UNLV and their coach, Jerry Tar- Tarkinian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The running rebels. Yeah. No, but they, you know, he somehow, you know, got caught up in some scandal and, you know, really had a uh, a black eye on that program for a while, which was so, so unfortunate because they had a great run oh, yeah. you know, back in the early 90s. It's, college basketball is a weird spot right now. The NCAA is in a weird spot. Yeah. Um, I actually just went to the NCAA's Pac-12 Mental Health Summit for student athletes at UCLA here this past week. And they're putting in standards, mental health and wellness standards that need to be abided by by all the universities. So they're making strides towards that. Maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later. But if you watch college basketball and NCAA, you bring that, it's almost like a polarizing term at this time with regards to Louisville basketball program makes $52 million. I know a lot of the college football programs are making twice that much and these players don't get paid. Yeah, that's a ball of wax and a can of worms all rolled into one. Yeah. Now that that's definitely something we're talking about when we continue the conversation. Oh yeah. Do you think um having uh escorts for your recruits is that a good way to connect with, <laughs> with future players on your team? Well, I'm sure it's something they won't soon forget <laughs> among the various recruiting trips. Yeah. All these yeah. pressures though. Like, yeah. Uh, talk about Urban Meyer, Florida Gators coach, more recently Ohio State's coach. Another guy that coached Aaron Hernandez. 
check out that Netflix doc, check out our uh, episode on concussion. He had to step down recently because of uh, health concerns. Um, I guess it was a congenital arachnoid cyst in his brain that kept causing recurrent headaches. But talk about Ohio State, fifth highest grossing college football program. And they make $132 million in revenue. So I was a little off when I said that football programs make twice as much as basketball. Sounds like the biggest ones may, may make up to three times as much. I think Texas A&M was number one. Crazy money. It's unbelievable. But, yeah, more money, more problems, the right? T- wait, the top 25 programs in college football bring in $1.5 billion of profits per year. And that's over $2.7 billion of revenue. That's a lot. And these 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 freshmen, these sophomores, these juniors, these guys that have bought in, and girls and other, I know some women's college basketball programs that bring in a lot of revenue, UConn, University of Tennessee, but they don't share in any of that action. No. They get college scholarships, they get housing, yeah. meals, state-of-the-art uh, What you'd like to facilities. see is, is maybe just a little bit more transparency. That's the thing that, for me, is kind of the toughest thing when it comes to fiscal policy and fiscal responsibility at the institutional level is like you you see the money i mean everybody sees the money even if you didn't know these specific numbers we we all could pretty much make a good guess when you see these packed stadiums and all the apparel all the commercial stuff that's going on the tv deals yeah the booze i mean all you know the whole nine and then you realize, yeah, I mean, this is game in, game out. It's the apparel. It's all day. It's every day. You know, they're just making all kinds of money. And then you realize that, yeah, I mean, you know, it just doesn't seem to be really, you know, going, down. going back into the player's experience. But who knows? You know, it, it's tough. It's, it's a difficult conversation. But... I think it, it's a conversation that could be, you know, certainly softened by more transparency. Just letting folks know, town hall meeting style. Hey, this is generally speaking where these funds are going. Yeah, you, you can know. extrapolate this conversation outside the NCAA and talk about the U.S. government um, as well, oh, <laughs> pretty yeah. much the same way. But <laughs> these coaches just have a lot of pressure, financial pressure to succeed to lead these million dollar industries they also have like i mentioned before nfl teams have 53 players 15 assistant coaches ncaa football teams have 85 players nine full-time assistants two graduate assistants and that's not to mention the strength coach so you're not only managing leading all these players you're also leading all your coaches as well and then you're interfacing with the media and you're interfacing with upper management you're also an employee when oftentimes when you're a coach well all the time when you're a coach you're also an employee of yeah. a GM, of an owner. Yeah, I guess there's no such thing as like a freelance coach. I'm trying to think, was there ever an owner coach? Ooh. I know that Michael Jordan came out of retirement, so he get out of owning a team. He never coached. Larry Bird, like there's been GMs and coaches. Larry Definitely. Bird did that. So a lot of different pressures and a lot of similar pressures that the players have, but then your own unique pressures. Pressure is there to perform. And a lot of these coaches are putting in, like you said, it's not a nine to five. They're putting in hours. Well, there's just so much that goes into it, you know. I mean, especially when you're trying to strive for greatness, you're creating the the plan. You are creating the the system. You're putting all the pieces in place, and it all comes down to you. Yeah, you know. So yeah, it's a big responsibility. And you're dealing with individuals. 
So what does this pressure to win lead to? Well, what's going on in the MLB right now? Houston Astros just got popped. And this is not a, st- a steroid situation. This is probably something that's worse. So their manager, A.J. Hinch, and their GM, Jeff Now, they got suspended for a year by the MLB. Wow, whole year. That's crazy. So what did the Astros owner do, Jim Crane? He said, nah, I'm firing him. And who else got fired? The Boston Red Sox manager, Alex Cora, just got fired as well because he was the bench coach for the Astros in 2017. And for those of you who don't know what happened, Astros got caught using video surveillance to steal signs mm-hmm. at their home game. So they had a camera in center field, zoomed in on the catcher. They would figure out what signs were for an off-speed pitch, and they had a monitor kind of in the hallway by the dugout where someone would sit by the monitor with a baseball bat in their hand next to a trash can. And once he figured out the signal for an off-speed pitch, if he knew an off-speed pitch was going to come, he would bang the trash can with his baseball bat to alert the player up at bat that an off-speed pitch was coming. So they got caught doing that, and now there's been Man, several I, people fired. Yeah, it, it God, it's crazy. It, uh, it kind of makes you wonder, though, because that's, that's a pretty primitive system, right? Um, I mean, it's sophisticated, well, but it's primitive in, in, how, in the execution. So I'm this. like, how many other teams have something yeah. like that going on? Check this out. Know? They also talked about possible buzzers on the skin of the players. So one of the players, Jose Altuve, who's one of their best players, and just so happens that his home runs and batting averages kind of skyrocketed the last few years, and his home splits are a lot better than his away splits meaning that he does better at home when there's the surveillance. There's rumors that players like him would have a buzzer affixed to their skin, and they would get buzzed each time that they thought an off-speed pitch was coming. And he actually hit a walk-off, I think it was in Game 7, against the New York Yankees, Adonis Chapman, who was closing, hit a walk-off home run, and when he was circling home, his teammates at one point had ripped his shirt off to celebrate, and he didn't want that to happen, so he, he held his shirt tight and said, don't rip my shirt off, don't rip my shirt off. Now people are speculating that's is because he had like a little buzzer or a little wow. wiretap on him. Anyway. And baseball, it's, it's like I used to really love that sport as a kid. You know, I, I really did, but it's like scandal after scandal after scandal. It's like always something new. Hey, they're in the news. We're talking about them. We don't get to talk about them that often. That's Carlos true. Beltran, who was actually a player for the Astros at the time, he recently got hired as the Mets coach manager, and he just got fired because of this. Now they're investigating the Boston Red Sox to see if they did it. Now, people have been stealing signs for years in baseball, but it's usually a player that's on second base taking a peek in and getting the signs and giving them away by like a hand signal. Mm-hmm. I think everyone's perturbed by the use of technology to do this. Yeah, and it sounds like it, it's been pretty much proven that it was coach-mediated, right? Like, it wasn't like, you know, I remember with Deflate Gate, Belichick sort of, like, threw Brady under the bus, right? He said, yeah, I don't, he was he was almost like, yeah, I don't get involved. What's going to happen I don't, with that situation? I don't get involved with, mm-hmm. you know, those player affairs, the ball size. He, he just, like, totally tried to kind of, like, pass it off onto Tom, and then Tom kind of had to deal with the criticism, when in fact, who knows? Maybe it was a, the coach's policy. I mean, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Who, where it came from, the original source of that strategy. But in this case, it seems like it was like not just a, some player. The ru- right? Yeah, it the was ru- like coaching and upper mm-hmm. level. The you know, rumors kind of are that it was orchestrated. the yeah. Red Sox manager, Alex Cora, was like the instigator of it. And that the GM of the Astros at the time, Jeff Lanau, 
didn't like what they were doing to the point where there was a rumor that he actually broke the monitor, the TV on purpose, so they couldn't do it. But it still happened, and he he's overseeing it. He's the general manager, right? Mm-hmm. Anything that happens below him is his responsibility. So I think that way the, re- the reason they justified firing him is, is a, a lack of uh, oversight mm-hmm. or a lack of institutional control. I think that's the term they like to use. Sure, yeah. But that's that's part of being a leader. That's part of being coaches. You're responsible for what your employees do. Mm-hmm. Your team does. Oh yeah. Your assistant coaches do. Yeah, I would say of all positions in most professional organizations that has the highest turnover, especially in, for teams that aren't very successful. Coaches, you don't have too many years to you know kind of get something going before you, know, you may see the axe. So yeah, it's a, a lot, lot of pressure. pressure. And like I mentioned before, I was at this the Pac-12 Student Mental Health Summit this past week, and they talked a lot about this new NCAA program. And there's a lot of new responsibilities due to this for the coaches. They have to be able now to, and maybe this wasn't so in the past, they have to be able to collaborate with mental health professionals. They have to talk to the sports psychologist. They have to talk to the sports psychiatrist. And just like they talk to, talk to the trainers, they have to have their, their finger on the pulse of the mental wellness, the mental fitness, the mental health of their, their athletes. Yeah. It's, it's critical to success. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's also critical, I think, that there's um, a very clear distinction made between the coach and the coaching staff and the medical staff, which would include the psychiatrist and you know, possibly you know, therapists and sports psychologists, et cetera. Oh, there's always a sports psychologist yeah. involved. You know, so one concern I have about the way that a lot of sports and athletic organizations have done it over the years is there's been kind of this enmeshment between like the coaching staff and then like the psychologists and psychiatrists and you know I feel like a lot of times coaches maybe know too much there is this kind of brotherhood and sisterhood that happens that we've talked about you know in in, in sports where it's like family business right Mm -hmm. and we try to keep things in house and for that reason that may compel people to kind of air their dirty laundry, you know, or whatever. There's always, there's fear to withhold and to be completely honest when you know your employer, your coaches or your teammates are going to find out what you're struggling with. Yeah. There's a lot of different issues there. I, I really do believe in the value of confidentiality, particularly when it comes to a medical related thing, you know, and I think that's so important and even more essential for the integrity of the team that certain things can just remain private and confidential. Yeah. So when you have too much of an intermingling between like the coaching staff, you know, who is that, have, they have to develop that relationship with the player. Whereas the medical staff, the psychiatrist, et cetera, it could be like, we can be the professionals, mm-hmm. right? We, we don't have to have that sort of like personal approach. We can just kind of keep it real, frankly, but also everything in confidence where you can develop a different kind of trust, right? Yeah. And um, Well, it's, I love that you brought that up because at this summit I was at, the NCAA has their best practices, but there's also spokespeople. There are sports psychologists coming from all these different colleges uh, representing different types of programs. Oklahoma University, uh, the Sooners, they have their sports psychologists in their own dedicated facility. It's actually in the stadium, the football stadium, 
separate from the, the campus-wide regular student psychological center. They have their own sports psychological center embedded within the athletic department right there in the stadium. So they're, awesome. they're a mesh. So there's definitely pros because they know that sports culture. Mm-hmm. They interact with the players on almost a day-to-day basis because they go to practices. They go to all the games. So they're part of the coaching staff, essentially. So there's pros to that because maybe I'm going to trust someone if I've seen them around. I've developed that personal connection with them. But then there's also that flip side of the coin, which you mentioned. Maybe I don't want my head coach to know or my teammates to know. And I'm less likely to walk into the sports psychologist's office if it's connected to the trainer's room where my Mm -hmm. teammates and coaches can see Mm -hmm. versus maybe go across campus to a just a regular student psychological services center. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's like the yeah the kind it's of too the, close, like you said, because yeah. you fear of losing playing time, fear yeah. of that stigma. There's it, there's so many different layers to right? it, you know. And Archie filled us in, remember, yeah. you know, on his experience, um, and yeah, you don't want to lose your spot. Ar- Archie, for those of you who don't know, he's the the Boise State offensive tackle that was a stud back in the day, and we interviewed him on um, a past episode. So go check that out. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it's very difficult to be vulnerable. You know, when you're in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have someone, a private space uh, that's confidential, right? I think that's just invaluable. It's absolutely essential. Yeah. And even the, the, um, the sports psychologist from Oklahoma University even stated that, well, the coaches are part of the treatment team. So he talks specifically about not getting into details, not getting into specifics about the treatment, but he'll say, yeah, I'm seeing them. And these are our goals. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of blurred lines because they justify it by saying that the coaches is still part of the treatment team so we can give them specific details. Versus in well, a normal patient encounter, yeah. we're not, we're not a, even allowed to say that they're a patient of mine or they're, they're seeing me until we yeah. get consent. Yeah, until you get consent. And obviously in this case, you know, the player is given consent. But I, I think that no, and that's then, something... Well, In I, this case, they can do it without the player's consent is what well, he was saying. Well, if that's the case... I think that's something that needs to be looked at. You know, I think that's something that definitely definitely needs to be looked at because I do think in certain instances it can be disruptive to the coach and player's relationship. And it's needless. You know, I think that there has to be and should be a sort of a neutral party, you know, that's outside of the coaching yeah, staff. Or at the end of the day, you get the buy-in from the player to give you consent. Mm-hmm. because ultimately you want to help the team out as well, but your primary goal is to help the individual. But in doing so, you also want to help the team out. So they talked a lot about how their their real role, you're not a liaison between the player and the coach. You're empowering the player mm-hmm. to feel like he can connect and discuss what's going on more so with his coach. So yes. you're allowing the player and the coach to get on the same page. You're, you're not You're healing. You're not bridging the gap. Yeah. You are bridging the gap, right? You're bridging the, the divide between With, them. You're, yeah, you're bridging the gap, but not you're not the middleman. No, definitely not the middleman. You know, so that's um, part of being a, a sports psychologist. You're, you're ultimately trying to reinforce these relationships, mm-hmm. right, and reinforce these bonds and make the team stronger. Um, but again, each each person's an individual, and you know has individual needs. I must tell you, man. Uh, you know, I I would be I'd be remiss if I didn't at least you know for a moment you know touch on 
we kind of clowned around a little bit and, you know, joked about uh, Tony Robbins and, you know, the whole life coaching thing. But honestly, uh, professional coaching or, you know, coaching professionals in, you know, whatever performance capacity. I mean, it really has become, I think, a, a huge force multiplier in the workforce in certainly in like the tech world, tech industry, you know, employee wellness, um, you know, lifestyle coaching, health coaching, you know, health and wellness sort of, you know, counseling and consulting, you know, it's, it's, this is like a huge thing now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. it, and it's all any about just bi- any big businesses incorporating all they can with people oh, yeah. to empower their employees. Yeah, and exactly. It's all about empowerment, man. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, right now is a great time to, to be a coach, you know, and I think it's a, it's a great time if you're someone looking to get better in some aspect, in looking to get better in some aspect of your life. It's a great time to find a coach. That may involve going to your boss or going to a coworker or going to a mentor or a pastor. Yeah. It may involve... Yeah. It may involve looking for a life coach. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, you want to to think about your goals. Like we talked about last last episode, you want to really like put those those goals in focus and um, create a plan. But that plan may have to involve a coach, right? I think that it's one of those things. It's one of those those changes for for twenty twenty that you know, may help you take things to a whole different yeah, level. Yeah, I think mentors are great. Like, I mean, the easiest thing to do is you find someone in a position, like a senior position at work, that can help you. Yep. They could be a coach or a mentor. You talk to your boss, you talk to a, a parent, an older family member, or someone that you feel is in a space that you would like to be in. Mm-hmm. Reach out to them, connect to them. Yep. Yeah, and it's not always about like, an everyday thing or something that has to happen every week, but sometimes just one conversation, you know, or a couple of chats here and there, honestly, can be so transformative, you know, to somebody giving you the right piece of advice at the right time. Also, you go out there and be a coach. Yeah, that too. <laughs> coach someone, help someone out, help someone uh, reach reach the next level. And, and it pays try, itself forward. Doesn't yeah, it? exactly. Try to connect with, just connect with people, and then by just connecting with them, maybe you'll empower them to, to reach a new goal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, man. Yeah, the, we people things are moving ahead with Steam. We talked about the NBA's new uh, mental health initiative. We talked about the National Basketball Players Association's new in, initiative. We talked about the NFL. Now we're talking about the NCAA's new initiative everyone's rolling out these new mental health and wellness initiatives. Mm-hmm. No. So it's hot. You it's, find it's hot. And That's right. it's not just a psychiatrist, but it's also psychologist. It's also a social worker. It's also a life coach, any type of coach. Find it, find your coach and move forward. Be a coach for someone else. All right, man. I think I hear someone banging at the trash can. <laughs> it's that time. It means it's time to close it out, man. Let's keep this rolling. Let's uh, end the stigma. And let's continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.